Welcome to The Paleo View. I'm best-selling author and co-creator of realeverything.com, Stacey Toth. I focus on being healthy inside and out through real life, food, and talk. I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne, New York Times best-selling author and creator of thepaleomom.com. I'm passionate about improving scientific literacy around public health topics. I like hashtags and bone broth. And I'm just a super nerd. Welcome to episode 394 of the Paleo View. We (laughs) are getting pretty topical and... um, This is the advantage of us doing the show every week. We have quite a, gosh, I was going to say epidemic, but I don't even know that that's right. You're going to, you're going to (laughs) educate me on that. Goodness gracious, um, this episode. And I know that the topic of conversation among both my personal friends, neighbors, online health professionals, everybody, um, as well as numerous questions from um, our audience are, what can I do to prepare myself for Mm -hmm. the incoming coronavirus? With warnings from the CDC here in the United States and across the globe, CDC obviously doesn't (laughs) warn across the globe, but this is traveling across the globe. We thought today would be good to talk about how we can become educated on what it is and more importantly, what we can do to protect the health of ourselves and our loved ones. So we're going to get a little scientific, but we hope that the takeaways that you have by the end of the show are to focus on being solution oriented. That's my mantra for 2020. I think we talked about that being a problem solver and being solution oriented, focusing on what you can do and having as much of a positive mindset going into um, this as you possibly can. Yeah, I think that one of the uh, challenges that we're having right now with um, COVID-19 is that there's there's a lot of unknowns and unknowns are um, uncomfortable. Right. It is very easy for anxiety to ramp up when we're operating on limited data. So what we're going to do in this episode is go through um, the facts um, as they stand now. We are recording this on Tuesday, March 3rd. I think that's really important because the the chances of these numbers being updated, I mean, even by the time we, we're done recording, um, are, are high. So, um, you know, we're going to try to, I'm going to try to go through um, the fact patterns and what we know and um, what, what numbers we're waiting for to, to find out. Um, but really the goal of this show, beyond sort of uh, cutting through the hype and the fear and really just um, providing you with a matter of fact, you know, factual, science-based um information base from which to make decisions, but is to give you action steps for um, preparation with a really high focus on diet and lifestyle things that you can do to support your immune system. And actually, because um, my inbox has been so... um, it's pretty full of questions around COVID-19. Um, I've decided to put together a free online public lecture 
on uh, how we can support our immune systems. I'm calling it immune health on a budget, but it has a uh, susceptibility to infection focus and a COVID-19 focus. Um, this online public lecture will be March 25th, and you can sign up to watch it at thepaleomom.com slash lecture. There's a little sign-up form there. Um, but most of that information I'm going to be, uh, we're going to be talking about in this episode. Um, it's just going to be a little bit more in-depth on that piece in the public lecture with visuals, which are always great, but we're not... There's no holding any information back here. It's really important um, for us to uh, give you as complete a picture as we possibly can. So I think the the best place to start here was is with a review of the biology and epidemiology of COVID-19. So COVID-19 is the name of the illness that is caused by this your new novel coronavirus. Uh, The virus itself has been named by the International Committee on Taxonomy of Viruses, a committee I had no idea existed until I was researching this show, but boy, they they sound like they party. Um, This virus has been called SARS-CoV-2. The SARS-CoV was the virus that was responsible for the SARS pandemic, what was that, in 2002. So it is the most similar to that virus, um, but it does have some some striking differences. It is uh, the type of virus it is. It's an RNA virus. So viruses either have DNA or RNA. um, And then what they do is they enter our cells and they basically hijack our cells' machinery to replicate themselves. And once they've made, you know, a few thousand copies, um, they exit the cell. That usually kills the cell. And then that exit and that cellular debris triggers our immune system. And it's the combination of the virus load increasing and um, the cellular damage from virally infected cells that triggers our immune systems. And so it's that um, it's that combination that is responsible for the symptoms. So some of the symptoms are really the symptoms of our immune system activating, and some of them are the symptoms of the damage that are caused by the high viral load. Um, where this came from, um, you know, this is one of those things that there's going to be, um, a lot more information, um, discovered through scientific processes over the next few months, year, two years. I mean, there's, um, after the, the SARS pandemic in 2002, there was research, um, I mean, there's still research, (laughs) there's research for about a decade, um, trying to understand, um, all of the details of that virus by way of trying to have um, protections for a future similar virus. Um, so that will continue with with this virus. Um, that is some people's entire careers is um, really trying to understand how these viruses originate, how they mutate, um, how they can be self-limiting sometimes and not in other cases. So similar um, to other um, SARS-like coronaviruses, this one appears to be zoonotic, which means it is able to infect multiple types of mammals. And it appears to have originated in chrysanthemum bats, but been passed on to humans via the pangolin, which is also known as the scaly anteater. Um, in the Wuhan province of China. 
the very good news here is that this virus is not mutating very quickly. Um, genetic analysis of the, the virus from the last couple of weeks compared to the virus in December shows that it's 99.9% similar. Um, and that, um, that makes it a much easier, uh, a, a much easier virus to, um, to do studies to figure out the best way to treat because it's not a moving target. So there are something like 80 different clinical trials um, looking at different um, antiviral therapies to, to see what's the best way to, to treat severe course of disease, um, COVID-19. Um, and there's also, of course, vaccine um, development underway. And all of that is more likely to be successful with a static target, which it looks like this virus is. So I think it's really important to emphasize that something like 80%, and that might be um, an underestimation of people who get COVID-19 have very, very mild, um, it's like a mild head cold. Um, in fact, there's um, some evidence already that there are people who can be completely asymptomatic. So um, just like the the common cold, so the common cold, about twice as many people are actually infected with the common cold as get cold symptoms. Um, so you can, it's basically, you know how you, f you can feel, oh, I feel a little sluggish today. I wonder if I'm fighting something off. Like, yes, you are. You're infected with a common cold. And um, depending on your susceptibility, you might get it, you might never get it. And so you can be infected without actually having what would be considered the clinical cold, which would be the manifestation of symptoms. And that seems to be the case with COVID-19. So it seems like um, the, the vast majority of cases are mild and that there may be um, also a fairly large cohort of people that are asymptomatic. And I'll talk more about why that's really, really good news in a minute. Um, the, the common presentation, um, 83 to 98% of patients who seek medical care. Um, so this is, um, the, well, I, you know, I'm feeling ill enough that I need to go see somebody. So this is starting to get into the moderate to severe, um, uh, courses of COVID-19. So fever is present in 83 to 98% of patients, cough in 46 to 82%. And these numbers, these ranges come from different studies that have looked at the clinical characteristics of COVID-19. Shortness of breath in around a third of patients, uh, fatigue or muscle pain in between 11% and 44%. And there have been some other symptoms reported without necessarily a really good idea of their frequency. Uh, sore throat, especially uh, early on headache, um, abdominal pain, and diarrhea. So there are there is a subset of, of patients who have GI symptoms, but it's um, it, it's unknown at this point how how common that is. Um, and some of the studies out of China have also shown uh, blood work findings. So low white blood cell counts seem to be relatively common, um, and also elevated liver enzymes seem to occur in about uh, a third or so. Um, of the patients that are getting blood work done in the hospital setting. Um, and then in the severe course of the disease, um, the, this is causing viral pneumonia. Um, so in the incidence of viral pneumonia, then you're seeing the sort of classic, um, you know, 
patchy, diffuse, infiltrate, foggy pattern on chest x-rays or chest CT scans. So what we're seeing right now, um, keeping in mind that most of the data that we have is out of China, and there are some reasons why um, we can expect this to look fairly different when it hits other countries. Um, so for example, um, the rate of smoking between Chinese and Chinese men is quite high compared to other areas of the world. Um, their air pollution, of course, is, is problematic, and that by itself can increase risk of lung infections. So keeping in mind that, um, that all of this data right now is, um, it's, it's preliminary data. So, um, it's, it's what we know now, but this is going to be updated and it's going to change as, um, as we have more cases to study. Um, but what's happening uh, or what, what has happened in Wuhan province is that um, definitely older patients appear to be more vulnerable to the disease. Um, so the median age of the infected is in the 50s um, and the median age of um, the people who have succumbed to COVID-19 is around 70 so older patients are definitely uh, appear to be more susceptible, um, as well as patients with other chronic health problems, particularly diabetes, high blood pressure, and cardiovascular disease. Um, there's something like 20-ish percent, maybe as high as 30 percent, um, have what would be considered a severe course of the disease. So that would be viral pneumonia requiring some kind of... Um, care, including respiratory support. So those are the people that have been hospitalized. That is very likely an overestimation because the very mild cases and the asymptomatic cases currently are not being counted very well in most places. So this is sort of, uh, this data right now is preliminary enough that um, similar to H1N1 in 2009, the preliminary data looked uh, a lot scarier than it turned out to be. So please keep in mind that saying that, you know, 20 to 30% of patients are having severe course, that is very likely an overestimate, uh, overestimation. Um, something like 10% of them required um, ventilation and or oxygen support in hospital. And um, there was also out of the data from from China, there was a about a 10% rate of secondary infection um, that was a hospital-acquired infection. So basically, immune system is so busy fighting the virus. Um, among those patients that were hospitalized for viral pneumonia uh, from COVID-19 in China, there's about a 4 to 15% mortality rate. Um, the overall mortality rate right now is estimated somewhere around 2%. And again, this is very likely to change because right now, mild cases are not being very well accounted for. The incubation period is estimated right so now to be... So can I just ask a question? It sounds like what I hear you saying is people with a strong immune system, similar to the flu would have less severe symptoms, less likelihood, obviously yes. no guarantee, right? But less likelihood right. of um, 
it moving into what you described as a severe course, but just from like a layman's terms perspective, we're seeing, you know, four to 15% mortality, but we're using quotation marks in that because there are countless people who are not being accounted for. Yeah. It's four to 15% of the... of people who have pneumonia from it. So most people are going to get a head and chest cold. And that is conservatively right now estimated at 80% of people. Um, So uh, most people, you know, most people it's, it's, it's just going to be like, it's cold and flu season already. Most of us will get a head and chest cold at some point in the winter. Most of us are not even going to know if it's COVID-19 because it's just going to be another head and chest cold. Um, the, the difference here is that compared to the normal rhinovirus um, or the other coronaviruses that cause head and chest colds that go you know, cyclically every winter, um, the chances of it becoming a severe course are higher, especially in vulnerable populations. And then the mortality rate among those people who have the severe course. The severe course equals pneumonia. That's that's what that means. Um, the mortality rate among those people is higher. And so um, based on the current data, I, I really want to emphasize that um, without really widespread testing that accounts for all of these mild cases, what these numbers now are are, are based on um, testing of people who are like obviously sick, right? So it's, it's a, it's undercounting the mild cases, which means it's overrepresenting the severe cases and the mortality rate. Um, but to what degree at this point, we don't know. Um, I just wanted to highlight some good news. That's all. Just, yes. (laughs) I, and I, I really like, I, I, I'm really trying to, provide our listeners with the facts um, because I think it's really easy to see the barrage of news stories and have our anxiety go crazy. And this is um, definitely like, this is not nothing, but this is not like panic end of days either. Um, So (laughs) somewhere in between those two extremes. Um, But I, I really want to give our listeners the information as well as um, understand where these numbers are coming from and how they're likely to change. Um, and the, the, the best example I can give is um, anybody who was really plugged into the 2009 H1N1 pandemic, um, you know, the World Health Organization received a lot of criticism for exaggerating how bad it could be, but it was a sort of similar situation to where we are now in the sense that that early data, because of, you know, it takes time to sort of recognize that this is a new thing and then you start testing and then it takes time to get those tests widely available um, and you're sort of in the middle of trying to contain it, right, and um, and trying to learn about it at the same time. That that early phase, right, there's... there's um, a lot of unknowns and decisions that are needing to be made at the policy level without complete data, because that's just the nature of these things. And so it's not until, you know, hindsight, when you look back and then you can say, oh, that, you know, sucked or, oh, um, that wasn't as bad as we feared. And with H1N1, at this 
sort of similar point in that pandemic, it seemed similarly um, nerve wracking. Um, and by the time it really hit the, the general population um, and we understood how mild cases weren't being counted early on, we were able to look at it as, you know, definitely, you know, worse than, than the average flu season, but not as scary as it initially seemed. So I really want people to understand that it's sort of where we are at right now in terms of the data. Um, I think it's important to understand things like incubation and transmission. Uh, so the incubation period um, is currently uh, estimated to be something like five to six days, but the range could be as little as one. Uh, and some, most reports have said up to 14 days, but there, there was a, a recent case report that suggested the incubation could be in some cases as long as 24 days. Um, and, um, that, uh, if it turns out to be true, um, might turn out to be problematic because quarantines in all of the countries up until now have been 14 days. Um, however, that's preliminary data. And again, this is the type of thing that will um, become more clear as we have more data. Currently, it's believed to be transmitted primarily through respiratory transmission, uh, which means um, aerosolized in um, mucus and saliva as somebody coughs or sneezes. Um, and it appears to be transmitted very efficiently. Um, there has been some tests showing viral RNA in stool and blood, so there may be other potential modes of transmission. Um, that is really, that is mostly relevant to health professionals because it will change um, the types of precautions that they may use. Um, but it's uh, right now, it appears to be predominantly th predominantly through respiratory transmission. Um, and it appears to be possible to transmit, uh, from people who are either asymptomatic, so they're like the common cold, they're infected, but they have zero symptoms or pre-symptomatic. So, um, that period of time in between your infect, your get the infection and when the symptoms really kick in. Um, but that again, that is based on, um, preliminary data. It is not confirmed to be the case, and larger studies are definitely required. Um, and that will have implications for, for screening and isolation, um, depending on when we find out that information. Um, at this point, um, you know, governments are all trying to figure out if quarantine is the right move moving forward um, because it may be much better to look at uh, mitigating the severe cases rather than um, quarantining if, if it's already um, if there's already incidences of community spread. We'll get to that. Um, one of the numbers that has um, has been leading to concern um, it's it's not necessarily the uh, mortality rate um, as much as the reproductive number or the R naught. Um, this is a measure used by epidemiologists to basically quantify how 
infectious something is. So it's a measurement of how many new people are infected for each one person. So on average, one person who's infected, how many people will they infect? Um, If that number is below one, you're talking about something that is likely to be self-limiting. So something that's self-limiting means that it's very, very easy to contain. Um, Something slightly over one, you're talking about um, something that with tracing uh, contact, right? So every case you have, you trace all the people that they've had contact with, you ask them to go into quarantine, you're probably still dealing with something that's very easy to contain. The R naught right now is uh, for COVID-19 is estimated to be between two and three, um, which means that it won't be self-limiting and that it definitely has higher pandemic potential than SARS it did in 2002. But it's also not what's called a super hot spreading virus. So um, something like uh, measles for uh, in a non-vaccinated population, one person can infect an average of 18 more people. So that would be an example of a super hot spreading virus where um, one, because one person can infect so many more, um, it can spread throughout a community sort of exponentially. Um, so this is something that is um, not low enough to be self-limiting, but not high enough to be um, like one of these like really intense community spread type infections. Um, the word pandemic, uh, basically means an epidemic. So an epidemic is an illness resulting in death with sustained person to person spread within a community. So I was right. So I used the word yes. accurately. So that, so this, uh, I mean, that's not a good thing, but I'm patting myself on the No, back. it's not. <laughs> Vocabulary. Yay. Uh, so that's what, so a pandemic is an epidemic that is occurring in multiple countries with worldwide spread. Um, COVID-19, as of this morning, is been um, is in 64 different countries. Um, that definitely counts as worldwide spread. There's definitely incidences of community spread, um, although in many of these countries, at least right now, it looks like um, it looks like it's isolated to certain spots. Um, And that is probably why the World Health Organization has not yet declared COVID-19 to be a pandemic, even though if you look at the data, it looks as though it it fits the definition. Um, And this is probably reaction to, again, sort of 2009 H1N1, um, which in the end was estimated to infect 61 million Americans, about a fifth of the population. Um, but have a far, far, far lower mortality rate than the initial data. So um, it's probably just the World Health Organization being cautious and trying to um, not repeat what was seen as a mistake in 2009 of um, getting people really worried when the they just didn't have enough data to really say that yet. Um But don't worry, lots of other social media and media organizations are taking on that banner for the World Health Organization this time, which is why I really want to make sure that this podcast episode is factual-based. 
where I am getting this information is not from media sources. And there have been over 400 different scientific studies that have been published already on this virus and this outbreak. Um, so those are my primary sources of information for all of this data. Um, the World Health Organization also has cited good uh, summaries as well as tracking what's happening where. Um, and the CDC um, it has some very good information. It is not being updated as often as many healthcare providers would like. Um, but, but those are the sources of the actual data that I am going to. So the question when we talk about global pandemic um, is, um, you know, what percent of the population could end up being infected? And that is something that is very, very hard to predict. Um, right now, um, there's lots of scary stats that are being reported in media articles. There was a, a Harvard epidemiologist epidemiology professor named Mark Lipsitch, which was quoted um, as predicting that 40 to 70 percent of the global population will get this at some point. Um, but currently, that's not supported by, um, by the data. So um, if you look at what percentage of the citizens of Wuhan province tested positive, it was um, half of a percent of the population now, granted, they were put on this large-scale quarantine where people weren't allowed. Initially, they were allowed to leave their homes like once a week, and then they weren't even allowed to do that, I think, for, for 10 days or, or 14 days. Um, so that is um, something that other countries may or may not do. I have a hard time envisioning that level of large-scale quarantine in America. Um, but if you look at, for example, the Diamond Princess cruise ship, um, where it the, the disease spread, um, you know, there's lots of criticism of the Japan government for quarantining in that cruise ship because the disease spread so widely on the cruise ship, despite quarantine protocols. But about 19% of the people on that cruise ship were infected, and those that's close quarters. So that's that's based on the current data. 19% is probably the worst case scenario. Um, rather than 40 to 70%. But again, this is one of those things that until we have community spread and widespread testing, it's really, really hard to estimate. To compare, between 3 and 15% of Americans get the flu each flu season. Um, so it it's um, potentially a little bit more infectious than the flu. Um, and, and at this point, you know, we're going to need more data to really... Um, to really understand that. Um, so far, the country that has had um, the most aggressive testing has been South Korea. So South Korea has a population of 51 million and they've tested um, 110,000 people approximately as of yesterday evening. They have 5,000-ish and change confirmed cases, um, which is a little over a 4% infection rate. Um, and that now that could change. There's approximately like 25,000 of those tests that are still awaiting results. Um, and they've had 31 deaths, which is a 0.6% mortality rate. So, um, given that they've done the most widespread testing, their data is probably 
closer to what we're going to see as COVID-19, um, you know, it, it will very likely continue to spread globally. Um, what we hope we can do is protect vulnerable populations, which is why reducing exposure and uh, what the CDC guidelines that have been recommended are all about. Um, so uh, they recommend staying home when you feel sick, which I I think we are very much in the habit um, of, oh, it's just a cold, right? I don't feel well, but you kind of, we kind of soldier through and we take ourselves to work anyways and we do all of our normal things and we sort of use over-the-counter medications for symptom management so that we can get through our normal day. This is not the time to do that. This is not the time to be a hero. Um, if you're feeling ill, um, the, the best thing that you can do is stay home regardless of whether or not you think this might be COVID-19, um, because that is the best thing you can do to stop spreading what you have to other people. Can I take that um, one step further and say, if you're a leader of any kind, whether you're a coach or a teacher mm -hmm. or, you know, a manager in an office, like if you are any sort of leader, saying this to people will encourage them to do that. I think a lot mm -hmm. of, at least for me, when I was, like a ma management in a corporate office, people felt like they needed to come in. Like, you know, if they requested work from home, you would think that they were not doing their job or something. So I would always like be very clear with people. Like, if you don't feel well, I don't want you here. Please stay yeah. home and, you know, get your job done if you feel well enough to work. But it is not worth getting the whole office sick, if, especially if we're super busy. Like, don't come in because you're sick because you feel like you have to push through. Then we're all going to get sick and our productivity is going to go down even more. So and I think that applies not just to COVID-19, but to, like, every aspect of life, yeah. right? I mean, I actually, I, I would hope that this this is um, something that we can learn moving forward in general, because it will help protect uh, vulnerable populations for every infectious disease. If we can sort of relearn that um, it is much better to stay home, and as soon as you start feeling sick, right, look after yourself um, so that you don't get the full-blown whatever it is. Um, the other thing, here's, here's a fun statistic that I learned while... Um, really digging into the data for this show is that only 5% of Americans wash their hands properly. I do fully admit that until three days ago, I was part of the 95% of Americans who did not wash their hands properly. Uh, so, so don't feel bad if you're also part of the 95%. Um, but washing your hands, there's tons of studies showing that washing hands can dramatically decrease infection rate. Um, and that is because the main way that we're getting exposed is by touching something that has been contaminated and then we touch our eyes and mouth. That's also why touching eyes and mouth, avoiding that is one of the CDC recommendations. Um, but if you're cleaning your hands regularly and washing them properly, so washing them properly means that you scrub them with soap on them for 20 seconds. So it should take about 30 seconds to wash your hands, wet them put soap on them, uh, lather up your hands, um, rubbing them together for 20 seconds, um, sing your favorite song that's 20 seconds long, or chorus of your favorite song that's 20 seconds long, um, wash under your nails between your fingers, um, and, uh, and then rinse them for 10 
seconds. Um, then if you are in a public bathroom, turn off the faucet with the paper towel that you're drying your hands with. Um, unless it's a like motion sensor. Um, and also if you're in a public, public restroom, open up the door with a, with your, um, the piece of paper towel that you've, um, used to dry your hands as well. So, um, the good news is that this virus seems to be very susceptible to soaps and cleaners. So in that case, it, I mean, anything that you're already using is probably great. Um, I can tell you that I have both Dr. Bronner's Castile soap and Branch Basics, all the Branch Basics cleaning products in my home, but also Branch Basics as a, a hand soap pump. Um, and I'm not changing what soaps I'm using. Um, so that is, you know, still what I have going on in my house. Um, but what I have done is, uh, now everyone has to wash their hands as soon as they come in the door. Um, everyone has to wash their hands before setting the table or handling food or eating or after they've gone to the bathroom or if anybody coughs or sneezes, um, they have to go wash their hands afterwards. And so that has been the, and I have, I will tell you the, on a uh, few days ago when we, we started really implementing this in the house, I said, everyone go wash your hands before dinner. And my husband went and washed his hands and came back. I want to say like seven seconds later. And I said, did you wash your hands for 20 seconds? And he said, no. And I said, go back and wash your hands for 20 seconds. And the kids thought it was hilarious. <laughs> but, but, uh, but my husband did it, and he was a good sport about it. Um, and so that is, you know, because we, I, we were not part of the 5% of Americans who washed, lathered their hands for 20 seconds every time they washed their hands up until three days ago. Um, and that has been a big, a, a big change in our habits that we're, we're actively working on because it's still not natural. Um, other things that the CDC is recommending is avoiding high-risk areas, um, very crowded places if possible. Um, and that is simply because it is easier to spread if you're, you know, packed like sardines in a place. Um, and there have been some, you know, big meetings. The American um, Physics Society canceled their meeting in Denver this weekend. I know because my husband's a physicist, um, but that was a meeting, an international meeting of 11,000 physicists, and they they ended up canceling it um, in order to hopefully hinder the spread of, of COVID-19. Um, and then the, the last CDC recommendation that I think is really worth mentioning is um, that most people do not need to be wearing a face mask. Um, the only masks that are actually effective are N95 and higher rated masks than N95s, so like full-blown respirators. And the personal protective equipment that healthcare workers are being asked to use also includes um, gloves, gowns, and eye shields. And one of the things that... Um, that uh, the professionals are worried about is that there could be a potential shortage of personal protective equipment for healthcare workers. So, uh, when would it be, um, a good idea for an average person who's not, you know, working in a, uh, long-term care home or as a, as a healthcare provider of some kind to wear a protective mask, um, would be if you are, immunocompromised, if you're going to a high-risk area, um, 
or if you have a family member who has tested positive, um, that changes the equation, but, um, it is not, uh, it's also one of those things that, um, you know, when you work in a, in a healthcare facility, um, I did, uh, I worked in research labs that were hospital based for years. And so we had to do all of the same, uh, emergency type training, um, infectious disease control type training. I worked in a hospital during the SARS epidemic in 2002, we had to do all the same thing as the healthcare providers just because we were in the building. And there's actually a, a method to removing the gear to stop yourself from being infected while you remove it. And that's something that um, the average person doesn't get that training. And so um, by sort of hoarding N95 masks, which there's definitely people out there doing um, who are not high-risk individuals, um, that is potentially... Uh, limiting the supply for healthcare workers who are getting exposed on a daily basis and are the people who really need them. Um, and so I do, you know, really think that um, that is important. I can tell you, I do not have any face masks in my home. Um, so that is, um, all of those things are really about exposure, uh, limiting exposure. Um, I think it's really important to talk about um, how we can protect ourselves. But if you think you have it, um, testing in America is um, about to become much more widespread. Um, the The CDC apparently has about 75,000 test kits that they have just recently produced. I'm probably by the time this episode goes live, it'll be much easier to get a test. Um, so if you think you have COVID-19, um, if you have the symptoms, um, and, and at this point, regardless of whether or not you've traveled, um, go to a doctor and get tested. Um, and then, you know, you want to also be quarantining yourself to, to minimize your exposure to others and do all of the things that you would normally do to recover from cold or flu, rest, hydrate, um, and seek medical intervention and hospitalization if necessary. Don't be a hero. There is, um, you know, this percentage of people who do need things like supplemental oxygen or ventilation support. Um, and I know that in our community, we can be very anti-hospital and anti-doctor. This is not, not the time to be that. Um, and there, there are some positive results from the antiviral, um, preliminary clinical trials. So if you have a physician who wants to give you a course of antivirals, I would say be open to medical intervention. If I felt that I had it and my doctor said, Hey, here's this experimental antiviral, I'd be like, hook me up. Um, so, uh, I, again, I, I think this is not the time to be skeptical of the medical community. Um, and I think the other thing that, um, I think is relevant to our listeners, um, that gave me pause was, um, to remember that corticosteroids can increase viral replication. So they're very good in the case of bacterial infection, um, but, uh, generally, not so good in the case of viral infection. So um, they, there's plenty of, um, of scientific papers that have said uh, avoid corticosteroids as a treatment unless they're indicated for some other reason. So unless you have a, another condition in which steroids are used to manage it, in that case, it's better to keep taking them. Um, but often steroids are sort of given for pneumonia, right? So the, the classic bacterial pneumonia, the treatment would be um, a pretty intense antibiotic like Levaquin and prednisone. 
um, in this case, the prednisone is contraindicated. Um, so if, um, if you end up suspecting you have COVID-19, suspecting you're having a more moderate to severe course, and that's what a medical professional recommends, uh, seek a second opinion. So what if um, you think you just have a cold? <laughs> I, I would say if you think you just have a cold, um, stay home, still stay home, still look after yourself. Um, I think that, um, I think it's, it's really important right now to, uh, help protect others. So if you think that you have a cold, um, you still don't want to give your regular old rhinovirus cold to a vulnerable person who then might be infected with something else that could suppress their immune system and make them more susceptible to COVID-19. So I think that uh, if you're feeling under the weather, um, stay home, rest, um, drink lots of broth and fluids, right? And, um, and look after yourself. And actually, you know, that this is where I really want to, to, you know, bring people along to is all of the things that we talk about on this podcast all the time that are really important for reducing inflammation. There are certain ones of those lifestyle things in particular that I think are really easy to uh, let fall down the priority list when life gets busy. And I grabbed some statistics on how uh, dialing in lifestyle factors not just impacts, right? It's not just about chronic disease um, at this point. It's also about susceptibility to infection. And I grabbed some stats to go over because I think this is um, this is a really important time to reflect on what we're doing diet and lifestyle-wise and see where we can improve so that we can best support our immune systems. And this is all the type of stuff that I'm going to go over in detail in my free online public lecture on March 25th. Again, you can sign up at thepaleomom.com slash lecture. But I am, what I'm doing personally and what um, I think would be a very um, positive thing for our community to do in general, in general would be to take the anxiety that comes out of a lot of the unknown about COVID-19 and channel that into better implementation of healthy diet and lifestyle choices so that we are using this as a, um, I don't know if motivator is quite the right word, but I'm, I'm at a loss for a better one, but a motivator to make positive change. Um, and the, the top one, top, top, top uh, is sleep. Um, I don't think it will surprise any of our listeners that getting sleep is important for immune function. We've only talked about it on this podcast approximately 6,000 times um, in 394 episodes. <laughs> um, but uh, there, it's not just now about uh, managing chronic illness. Um, not getting enough sleep suppresses the immune system's ability to fight off an infection. There was a a very well-designed study done in 2015 where they took 164 people. Um, they screened them for other things. They tested them to see if they were already infected with a cold virus. Um, and what they did was they they gave them uh, an ACTA watch, which is um, what is the standard way to measure 
sleep and sleep efficiency in studies, but because it can just be worn on the wrist and doesn't disrupt sleep the way like a polysomnogram would. Um, And they asked the people to keep, um, I mean, they were keeping sleep diaries, but they're also doing a bunch of other questionnaires to look for other things to control for in the study. Then, uh, so then they got their initial sleep data. So it was, they weren't told to sleep. It was just like, do everything as normal. They got their sleep data and then they were basically segmented. So people sleeping less than five hours, five to six hours, six to seven hours, and seven hours or more. And then the the second part of the study was they took all these people um, and they kept them isolated in a hotel for six days. Uh, And on the first day, they injected uh, rhinovirus, the common cold virus, up their nose. And then they followed them for six days to see who would get sick. Um, And they actually did some follow-up blood work and stuff at 28 days. And after correcting for every other possible factor, um, sleep duration was an incredible predictor of whether or not the people would get the cold. Um, And actually, interestingly, not sleep efficiency or sleep fragmentation. So it wasn't the quality of their sleep. It was total sleep um, in this study. And the people who slept less than five hours a night on average were four and a half times more likely to develop a cold compared to the people who slept seven or more hours a night. Um, And this was total sleep. So this was after the amount of time it takes you to fall asleep was accounted for, which is typically about 30 minutes for most people. Um, The people who slept five uh, to six hours were uh, still like four uh, 4.24. So it was almost the same times more likely to get a cold. Um, and then at six to 7%, it was only 66% more likely. So less than double the chance, um, compared to people who got seven, seven or more. Um, and there, this type of study, there's been a lot of prospective studies where they've looked at, uh, people, they've looked at their sleep and then they've just kind of followed them and seen how often they get colds. Um, there was one out of um, one of the, the nurses' cohort studies where they looked at uh, f- female nurses aged 37 to 57, no pre-existing conditions, right, no risk factors, um, and they followed them for a couple of years and found that those who slept less than five hours per night had a 70% higher risk of developing pneumonia than those who slept more than 8%, This or more than eight hours. Now, this is you know, this is predominantly going to be bacterial pneumonia. Um, but, uh, this is really a a huge impact of, of sleep. Um, so sleeping at least seven hours, eight hours is, is much better. If sleep is not dialed in for you, this is the time to do it. And the best thing, uh, that most adults can do to prioritize sleep and to get good sleep is to just put it on the to-do list, make yourself a grown up bedtime, um, I recommend being in bed for eight and a half to nine hours um, before your alarm goes off in the morning. So that means that that accounts for that time that it takes to fall asleep and any, you know, arousals during the night is typically taken off of total sleep so that your total sleep can be in that seven to eight hour range. That's, that's optimal. Um, and recognize that some people do need more sleep, um, but it's, it is now, now is the time. Now is the time for sleep to be on the to-do list. And it's also very important to sleep on a consistent schedule. It basically hormonally trains your body to anticipate when you're going to sleep and when you're going to be awake. So it cements your circadian rhythms and that makes it easier to fall asleep. 
um, if you're going to bed at the same time every single night. Um, stress is about the same in terms of how big of an impact it can have on our susceptibility to infection. There was a, a very similarly designed study where they took people, they uh it gave them a stress index through a questionnaire. So that's a semi-quantitative measurement of how stressed they are. Um, this study was done way back in 1991, but it's still considered one of the most important studies in understanding stress in the immune system. Then they uh, in injected cold virus up their nose. They actually um, used five different viruses. So they used three different kinds of rhinovirus. They used one coronavirus of not COVID-19. There are other coronaviruses that cause the common cold. So, they're, they're, I mean, it's coronavirus is like a class of viruses. Um, and then one RSV virus. And uh, they um, basically showed a complete dose response. So um, if you look at the, the graphs in this paper, it is a straight line. The more stressed the person was, the more likely they were to get that virus. And when they compared their highest quartile, so the highest stressed 25% to the lowest stressed 25%, the high stress people had a nearly six-fold increase in infection rate. So 5.81 times higher rate of getting um, getting the, uh, the, the being infected with the virus compared to the lowest stress quartile. Um, and uh, interestingly, a lot of those were still asymptomatic. So the rate of actually developing what would have been called a clinical cold, so they were actually measuring it by weighing the Kleenexes that the people were using. Um, so lucky lab tech who got to do that. Um, but it was if still you could see over... my face right now. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. It's, uh, I read that. I was like, oh, I'm so glad I didn't do my, my grad studies in that lab. Um, but they even looking at clinical colds, um, there was still more than double the amount in the high stress group compared to the low stress group. Um, and they're, again, sort of similar to the sleep studies. There have been prospective studies where they look at a bunch of people. So there was one um, in 1995 where they um, took uh, military research installation employees um, and six months before flu season started, they did an assessment and categorized them either as high stress or low stress, and then just counted how many times um, they, you know, people got the flu over the flu season. And the high stress people were about three times more likely to get the flu over the next um, season. Um, so I want to point people to uh, episode 383 of the Paleo View, where we talked about anxiety. Um, Really, stress and sleep go together. It's really hard to work on one and not the other because the best thing you can do to support your sleep is manage your stress and go to bed at a regular time. And the best thing you can do to reduce your stress is get enough sleep. Um, but we also talked about other things like uh, mindfulness practice, for example, nature walks in that episode. Um, so uh, we are still, it's it's March now, and my family is still with our New Year's resolution for 2020 of doing a headspace meditation together every evening um, for 10 minutes. And we, we all sit around. I put it on my phone and put it through a little Bluetooth speaker, and we all sit in our own little spots uh, in our bedroom, and, and we all uh, do the meditation at the same time. Um, and it has um, been a really positive thing for our family. So... Um, if uh, stress is still an issue, 
Um, remember that stress is a two-sided equation, so there's both reducing stress when possible. That's a, sometimes a harder part of the equation um, to change for a lot of people, and also increasing resilience activities, which would include things like laughing, playing with a, a pet, um, cuddling with a pet, um, nature walks, mindfulness practice, uh, activity can be a really great stress management tool, as well as getting enough sleep. So that you is very, very important. You did not mention a sense of well-being. Having a strong sense of well-being, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, know what I mean, know what I mean, uh, is also an excellent stress management technique. I, I recently sent out an email about um, reducing inflammation, and I highlighted that as a, re as a, as a way to, like, calm down. <laughs> yes. 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 Um, I think, uh, anyway, I don't want to dwell too much, but I think that's one of the things when you're feeling stressed that you put last mm -hmm. and making time for that or mindfulness or whatever it is, right? Like exercise. When you prioritize that thing, I think you're changing a switch in your head. Like, oh, th this is a thing that we're doing. I, I can calm down about everything else. It's, I think it's a double benefit. It's not just the benefit of the actual thing and the hormones that, and you know, all the other things that um, go into it. But um, by telling your brain, I'm prioritizing this thing over this thing, it then, at least for me personally, enables me to prioritize all the other beneficial things that I do in my life instead of being so wound up and focused on all the stress or what I haven't done or what I need to do. And do you know what I like? I just think it's, it's so mm -hmm. important whether I, I have the, the same effect from flossing my teeth. Um, <laughs> not that same effect. Let's be clear. Um, but the self-care feeling I'm like if so I'm so uncomfortably embarrassed right now. <laughs> no, I mean, if I'm taking the time to floss my teeth, I'm taking the time to look after myself. And it tends to translate to taking better care of myself in every other way if I'm taking the time to floss my teeth. That is that is the similarity. I mean, not any other kind of similarity. Yeah, it's it's red light therapy for me in the morning. Like if I mm -hmm. get get up 15 to 20 minutes early enough to do that, it really sets my mind for the day of like, okay, I'm going to prioritize me and my health and, and the things that I need to do, not just my to-do list today. Um, so moving on, <laughs> we're like, I'm, I'm blushing here. We're like, where um, are we? Okay. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Um, I think the, the last, uh, lifestyle thing that's really important for supporting immune health is getting lots of low and moderate intensity activity while avoiding, a strenuous or a high intensity activity. So there's a lot of studies showing that um, athletes, um, people who uh, endurance training, especially, um, but anybody who's doing really intense uh, training has a much higher chance of especially upper respiratory infections, um, like a head cold, um, as well as things like asthma. Um, and so it's in part because there is a shift in immune function directly after strenuous activity that actually creates a window of susceptibility to infection. But moderate exercise is super, super, super great for the immune system. So this is really about dialing in the intensity, something like 60% um, of your 
however you're measuring it, max heart rate, for example, is a really good level to be at. Um, so there's been a bunch of different studies that have looked at moderate exercise as a, um, as a immune boosting. And it's also like the more consistently you do it, the better it is. Um, so the, the benefits to your immune system just compound over time. And so it's, it's really important to be active, but avoid that sort of overtraining scenario. So there's, um, for example, a 2006 study done in overweight and obese sedentary postmenopausal women. And they were divided into two groups. One group did 45 minutes of moderate intensity exercise five days a week. And the other group did 45 minutes of stretching and they followed them for a year. And then in the final three months, they looked at uh, what their likelihood of getting a cold was. And the uh, stretching only group, which was still a fairly sedentary activity, had three times higher likelihood of getting a cold compared to the exercise group. Um, and there was a similar um, study done in um, healthy weight, um, you know, no confounding factors, women ages 45 to 65, where they had them do 30 minutes of moderate intensity activity, 60% max heart rate five times per week, and showed sort of a similar level of effect in terms of um, preventing um, common colds. So this is a really really great time to be dialing in these lifestyle factors and they all work together, right? So getting activity reduces stress, reducing stress helps us sleep. Um, getting enough sleep makes us more motivated to be active and helps, uh, helps us be more resilient to stress, which then improves sleep quality. So they, they all really work together. Um, and I think that, um, certainly I know in my life, this is, these are the easiest things to, um, let slide when life gets busy. Um, and now is definitely not the time to let these things slide. Um, but there are some other things in terms of nutrition. So vitamin D levels, um, there's quite a lot of evidence that having suboptimal vitamin D is associated with increased illness risk. Um, so I highly recommend uh, testing your vitamin D and supplementing accordingly. And we talked about this in episode 354 on this podcast. Um, so make sure you go listen to that episode. Um, and it's important to uh, up nutrient density. So there's lots of nutrients that are um, associated with uh, a, a better, more effective immune system. And um, it really boils down to antioxidants, fiber, and vitamin C, which means eating tons of veggies and fruit. And please don't be afraid of eating fruit. Um, there's actually data showing that going too low carb can actually increase susceptibility to infection. Um, and increasing whole food carbohydrates can be very, very helpful in supporting immune function. Um, and there have been studies that have shown that eating three or more servings of fruit per day um, causes a reduced rate of uh, upper respiratory tract infections, which are things like colds, um, compared to eating two or less servings of fruit per day. So don't be afraid of fruit in here. Um, I think a good rule of thumb, if you're going to have eight servings of veggies and fruit per day, which is sort of the, the cusp for the, the best effects for long-term health, would be five of those be vegetables and three of those be fruit. Um, you could also do eight vegetables and three fruit. I think that'd be fine. Um, but if, if this is still something that you're working on, Five and three is a, is a really good goal. 
Um, vitamin E is also a really important antioxidant for uh, the immune system, and we get that from foods like olives, avocados, a high-quality olive oil or high-quality avocado oil, nuts and seeds. Um, Omega-3s are really important, um, so we're getting that from fish and shellfish. Um, but also that low-carb, high-fat situation, again, um, too high-fat can also be problematic for immune function. Uh, so keep that in mind. Balanced macros is definitely where we're going with this. Um, vitamin A, and this really means the preformed animal form of vitamin A, and vitamin D, as I just mentioned, are really important. We're getting those from liver and other organ meat, fish and shellfish. Um, zinc is a phenomenally important immune health nutrient, and we're predominantly getting that from shellfish, but we can get zinc from other fish, meat, um, and some nuts and seeds. So those, those are the top nutrients um, for supporting immune health. It really boils down to the nutrient density focus that we talk about all the time of eating plenty of vegetables, fresh fruit, uh, fish and shellfish and organ meat, and then rounding out with um, other quality meats um, and making sure that we're getting sort of balanced macros. And then there's definitely evidence that a healthy gut microbiome uh, can improve our ability to fight off an infection. Um, and there have been studies done in athletes with probiotics showing that um, taking probiotics doesn't decrease their infection rate, but it improves symptom severity and decreases the duration of infection. Um, and so, you know, generally, I think getting probiotics from foods, fermented foods, raw fermented sauerkraut, kombucha, water kefir are great. Um, but we're also getting um, soil-based organisms from a um, probiotic like Just Thrive. Um, so to remind our listeners, uh, Just Thrive is not sponsoring this episode, but they have sponsored podcast episodes before. And we have a ongoing coupon code with them. You can save 15% off with the code PaleoView15 um, at the website thriveprobiotic.com slash the paleo view. So all of those things together, I think, um, you know, most of our listeners are probably doing fairly well with diet. Um, I know that if our listeners are anything like me, it's the lifestyle stuff that is harder to stay really consistent with. Um, and, uh, the data would show, I mean, none of that data is, is specific to COVID-19. It's all other, right? Like colds, um, but it does give us a um, it does give us evidence that um, dialing in those lifestyle factors are really important for supporting our immune system's ability to fight off an infection, um, and that is exactly what we all want to be doing right now. Again, you know, we are still waiting for more data on um, COVID nineteen to really understand the impact, who's at risk, what the additional risk factors are. Um, but this is the thing that we can do to prep right now. I think that it's important to point out a lot of these things are what we talk about day in and day out. But one of the things you mentioned at the top is we get busy. And just like yeah. you might not have been washing your hands for a full 20 seconds, you know, even we here on the podcast, I'll speak for myself, like, we can talk about these things day in and day out, how many vegetables to eat. The other day, I 
saw Matt's dinner and I knew what he'd had for breakfast. And I was like, how many veggies have you eaten today? <laughs> and he was like, <laughs> you be quiet. <laughs> I was like, come on. <laughs> you know, and I think you don't necessarily have to be scrutinous 100% of the time if your health doesn't require it or your stress levels are too much and maybe, you know, you get out of the habit of some of these things. And so mm-hmm. like Sarah, you said, it's, it's a good time to just like rethink, okay, what are the habits that I have right now? For me, that's going to be sleep. Like I know that I am and have been recently really been craving vegetables. Like I'm super into them right now. Um, cool. And that just is probably my body's way of saying, hey, you've been stressed, you need to replenish your stores a little bit. But I also know that, you know, I was not getting as much sleep historically in the last Mm -hmm. recent future as my body would like and is as beneficial. And I think the studies that you gave on nurses, I think you said 70% higher chance of getting pneumonia. Like that's going to be a statistic that sticks with me and, and that I'm going to remind Matt when he wants to stay up late, like, Hey, you're 70% more likely if you don't (laughs) go to bed. So, um, not that, not that that translates exactly. I'm saying that not Sarah with the science, right. But I think you can extrapolate information and data like that into, okay, how much more, would I be able to fight off a cold or would I benefit from um, if I, if I prioritize these sort of things myself? So maybe just take a quick look, like what are the things that I'm, that I'm doing that I realistically could change in a sustainable, easy way. And if you take the entire list of everything that we just talked about, you're going to get potentially overwhelmed and do nothing. And that's not what we want either, right? Like, what are the things, you know, purchasing some supplements and leaving them on your bathroom counter and kitchen counter, wherever you take them, leave them out and just get in the habit of taking them each day. Step one. Step two, set a reminder on, you know, your phone for shutting down at a certain time of night and putting yourself to bed so that you can get back into these habits that you might be out of. Um, I think that there's a lot of things that, help our health long term. And we know we need to do them. But when life comes along, it's easy to just like, put them aside. Um, And we don't want you to have guilt that you haven't been doing them or that you aren't doing them or whatever. That doesn't do you any good. We talked about stress, right? So it's just a matter of like, okay, what can I do today? The three things I'm going to focus on are taking my supplements, getting my fluids in and going to bed early. And you get in the habit of those things. And then you say, okay, I really want to add an additional physical activity, you know, an extra time a week or, you know what I mean? Like whatever it is. Um, Because when we get into the reason that these New Year's resolutions don't work is because people have these unrealistic expectations that they can change all of their habits all at once. And then when they don't succeed, they feel like failures and then they walk away from it all. So don't let this be that for you, right? Like we're talking about all of these things being super good. And this time of year, especially when you're facing not just COVID-19, but the common cold, the flu, the bronchitis that a lot of people get this time of year, um, which is also related to inflammation and lifestyle for a lot of people. It was for me. I had bronchitis twice a year, every year until I went paleo. So, you know, all of these kinds of things can lead to health improvements when we add in things. But if you try to do it all and you don't succeed and then you walk away from it all, that's not helping you either. So just think about how this could work for you. 
That's what I'm saying. And I want to remind people that um, I'm putting together this online public lecture. It'll be completely free um, to really go through the, the you know, up-to-date data on all of these different things that we can do to support our immune systems with the sort of like easy, affordable biohacks to support each one of these um, in this lecture on March 25th. And again, you can sign up at thepaleomom.com slash lecture. I think that's also perfect timing because it's about two weeks from when the podcast comes out. So Mm -hmm. get yourself into some habits and then you will have a good refresher, reminder, refinement (laughs) in about two weeks when you do the lecture. So if they sign up, they can't watch it live. I'm assuming they can watch it back later. Yeah, so it'll be live on the 25th, but everybody who signs up will get a link for the replay. So if you can't attend live, um, still sign up because that's how you'll get the replay. And I'm also putting together a um, like downloadable summary for people that'll have like a point by point. It'll be like an full outline. So it'll be point by point with like the action items um, highlighted. So um, I would do it sooner if I could, but I, I really do need this much time to put together something that's going to be really helpful and awesome. Um, and also, I'm sort of hoping that by March 25th, we've we've got more data to act on. Um, so I'm hoping that it will be something that can be like super up to date and extraordinarily helpful for everybody. Sarah, thanks so much for pulling together those resources. And it's, I mean, I... I have no bearing in this. So let me tell you, a free lecture is always a good thing, my friends. Um, anyway, I just want to thank you for listening in. If you have follow-up questions, especially within the two-week period, make sure you, that you share them so that they can be addressed in this resource Sarah is putting together, whether on social media or um, however you are getting your podcast. We love your feedback. If you think it would be helpful for your friend who is buying out all the masks and um, has filled their basement with everything from Costco to listen to this podcast about, you know, some some science-based facts and information that might calm them a bit. Or if you have a friend who doesn't care at all and thinks that washing hands is gross, maybe send it their way. Uh, We love your recommendations (laughs) and feedback and referrals are the best way to get um, our show into the hands of more people. So we appreciate you doing that. We will be back again next week. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Paleo View. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. You can also support us by shopping for our favorite paleo products on the sidebars of our individual websites or by donating through PayPal. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.